Welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the TJ FM network. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. And if you're a fan of Soundboard, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about the show. This week, we have Thanksgiving on the Brain with two segments about food. First, community gardening with Charlottesville tomorrow, and then we learn a little bit about the local restaurant industry with Chef Antoine Brinson. In our final segment, Nathan Moore talks to Peter Galaska about the new Speaker of the House of the General Assembly. Today we're joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Emily Hayes and editor Elliot Robinson. Emily Hayes has just written an article titled, The Friendship Court Garden's Final Season. We talk about that garden and other community gardens and what will happen to them as public housing and affordable housing developments around the city start the redevelopment process. Emily, can you tell us about this community garden at Friendship Court? So Friendship Court is a nonprofit-owned affordable housing complex. It is publicly subsidized, but it is not public housing. It is close to a lot of other public housing, like Crescent Hall, South First Street, Sixth Street. It's in the southern area of Charlottesville, near the downtown mall. Kind of by Ix Art Park. Yeah, exactly. There's a whole section of that that's kind of a field. There's a playground, and there's this community garden. It's been providing free, fresh produce for low-income residents of those neighborhoods for something like 12 years. And that's thanks to this organization, the Urban Agriculture Collective of Charlottesville, which is a resident-led organization. Can anyone be part of the Urban Agricultural Collective? Yeah, yeah. They get volunteers from all over. Some of the board members are not low-income residents. It's really intended to be this community-building organization. And does the Urban Agricultural Collective of Charlottesville give away all of the food that's grown in these gardens? Yeah, so they have these market days this summer and, and this fall. They did it every week in various sites, so Friendship Court out South First Street. A lot of the volunteers have been involved in this for a really long time and, you know, know the people who pick up the vegetables, and it's, like, really a a staple part of people's life. So your article is about the fact that this is the last season for this garden at Friendship Court. Will you talk about why that is? Friendship Court is redeveloping, and that's a resident-led process. One of the priorities for residents was that no families would have to move out of Friendship Court as part of redevelopment. So the first buildings they're putting in are basically right on top of the garden, right on top of this open field. That way, no buildings have to get demolished to do that. But it means this garden won't exist next summer. It's definitely a bittersweet moment for residents because this is the first garden that UACC did. It's really important. It's by far the biggest. And it also serves as a park to people. But at the same time, this means that redevelopment is actually starting and they'll get to have nicer, newer homes. So there are plans to rebuild the garden, but not until a later phase of redevelopment. Why is that? So this is really interesting. You know, it's a resident-led process. So they're including a green space in their first phase of redevelopment, but they decided 
that the playground, the basketball court were more urgent needs. So they're all convinced that they need a garden at some point, but it just isn't going to be in that first phase. It's really fascinating to see that process come to fruition. If uh, you're familiar with the story that Jordi Yeager wrote for us, reimagining a friendship court that came out earlier this year, is that it's not very often that redevelopment at this large of a scale has the input of the people who live there. Typically is that the plan gets rolled out, there's a public hearing of some sorts, and then the work just begins. Has the Urban Agriculture Collective of Charlottesville found any other places to garden in the meantime? So they are using a couple of strategies to make sure their market days will not be interrupted, people won't experience any change in that they're committed to bringing free food to people. They haven't found their permanent next spot. So they are looking for locations. They've talked with the Charlottesville Parks Department about whether that's a possibility. They want it to be downtown because it's really important to have this integrated volunteering experience, integrated park experience. Have it walkable. Right, exactly. Some residents don't have cars or their car's broken down. They don't have another option. While they're finding that permanent spot, they're going to use a few other techniques to try to get those vegetables and everything. One is they still have some garden space. They have partner organizations that have gardens in the city, so they're going to share with those organizations. And they're also probably going to purchase from the local food hub. But definitely if you live in that's part of the city and you have some space left over and you'd like to help out, they would be more than happy to speak to you to see if they can plant something in your yard. Yeah, they said half an acre is the minimum size that they're looking for. South First Street is also redeveloping. That's the location of their other large garden. And like Friendship Court, the South First Street ball field and garden is going to be the site of the first phase of that redevelopment. And then that way, a lot of residents can move in there, and then they'll do other phases from there so that they don't have to displace anyone. Let's talk about the efforts to avoid displacement a little bit more. In the article, there were a couple of people talking about how sad it is to lose the garden for a little while, but it sounds like from other things the residents involved in the process were like, but obviously it's a much higher priority Mm -hmm. that people are able to keep their housing. Right, right. I think Tamara Wright is a really good person to describe this because she's in both worlds. She's been leading the UACC for a long time. She also has been involved in the resident committee, advisory committee for a long time. So she's there making all of those decisions. She's so committed. When you hear her talk about the importance of fresh food, what it does for your mental health and clarity, she is so, such an advocate. At the same time, It was just so important to them that nobody be displaced because elsewhere there's not much housing available at that price point, Mm -hmm. hardly any probably, and it's more probable that people won't move back than it breaks up the community and people might not return. So it's widely known that the city started building public housing as part of their urban renewal process when they raised Vinegar Hill, a black neighborhood and business district that was downtown. Building on top of where this garden was is one of the first steps in a wave of redevelopment 
both by nonprofits and of the public housing by the city. Is that history of urban renewal and the origins of Charlottesville's public housing relevant to the conversations going on now about development? That process of urban renewal is so present in so many city planning conversations, not just related to redevelopment. I think redevelopment is very resident-led at this point. Public housing residents who are involved, they feel pretty certain that what they'll get is what they want. But many people are still uncertain that they will get anything. I've heard so many people say, I'll believe it when I see the construction crews here because there's been this long process of saying public housing redevelopment was going to happen. People have been pushing for it and it just didn't happen. People have lost a lot of trust. So there's this long process of those residents losing trust in the city. I think there's some trust with the housing authority now, but definitely a lot of distrust of the city. And that's why a lot of the community input was so important for these redevelopment plans because there are people there whose parents were living in these neighborhoods or they were little children when this happened the first time that someone came by and said they were going to make things better for you and it led to their homes getting torn down, property that their family may have owned no longer belonging to them and everything getting completely uprooted and destroyed and when this comes along again like they really had to present it in such a way that it's like, we're doing this with you, we're not doing this to you. I think Friendship Court residents have a little bit less of that legacy of distrust than public housing residents who have been hoping that redevelopment was going to happen for such a long time and have been living with some really awful conditions. I also think that based on the the kind of community organizing that's that's happened, you know, the Public Housing Association of Residents, you know, is pretty vocal these redevelopment processes would be very difficult without that level of trust building. In your reporting, can you think of a time when that lack of trust has come up at one of these redevelopment meetings or at city council or planning commission? Part of why I say that residents distrust the city more than the housing authority is that the processes that have been most controversial because of urban renewal and people bring that up and bring up this sense that they no longer belong is in these larger redevelopment comprehensive plan processes. I was at a meeting this week that was about form-based code for (laughs) this area that surrounds Friendship Court and people were were saying we don't understand this this is being done to us not with us this is going to displace us even if the consultants involved, the consultant who did the housing needs assessment says that's not really going to happen and it's preventable. But I think that legacy of distrust is so present in those kind of processes and is why trust building is so important. If you have questions about form-based code, (laughs) check out our episode a couple weeks ago about it and Emily's article. How does this story relate to your series on food injustice in Charlottesville? So this is one of the initiatives and goals of the Charlottesville Food Justice Network is to have basically parks that produce food in all of these low-income neighborhoods. When I ask them, what can enthusiastic readers do? They're like, get involved in the CFJN, advocate to use parks as gardens. Well, thank you, Emily and Elliot. You've given us a lot to think about. 
Let's end this segment like we do every week by asking the folks at Charlottesville tomorrow, what's on your calendar this week? So there's a housing conference that I'm going to on Tuesday. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. Okay, and then on Wednesday, we're going to have our second community feedback session. This one will be at our offices in City Space on the downtown mall. It's uh, mostly directed toward the parents of children attending Charlottesville City Schools. We're going to be talking about the changes that we're making in our organization, and I'll be speaking our executive director, Giles Morris, and also our education reporter, Billy Jean-Louis. Okay, it'll start at 5.45 p.m. Thank you all so much for coming. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Emily Hayes is a reporter covering housing and development for Charlottesville Tomorrow. Elliot Robinson is the editor. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TJ FM Network. WTJU and TJ FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. Today we're joined by local chef Antoine Brinson. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your career? Yeah, sure. So I uh, went to school in upstate New York, Culinary Institute of America. The CIA. Yeah, (laughs) the CIA, right? The infamous CIA. After school, you know, uh, to kind of sum it all up, I spent the last 15 years traveling nationally and internationally as a chef with the mission of understanding culture to have a deeper understanding of food. Can you tell me about a meal that you ate or made for someone that has really stuck with you? Yeah, that's a really, really, really good question. I guess it would, for me, it's more of a menu. Um, when I was in uh, high school, wow, taking you back, mm-hmm. I wrote a menu inspired by the uh, my surroundings I grew up around with influence of Carops, um, uh, many different African countries and African-American. And I, when I was in high school, I took a vocational program where I uh, produced a uh, international soul food menu. And at that time, I did not have the skill set to execute the menu. And it's kind of crazy. Ten years later, uh, when I was in Hawaii, I was kind of going through my archives and I was looking for, you know, I wanted to do a, a special menu. And uh, I came across that menu and uh, I executed it. I executed the menu. Um, and it was just like a huge milestone in my career. Um, sold out, sold out event. Uh, but it was, it was uh, for me, it was really special. What role does creativity play in your career as a chef? It's everything. Um, it's it's from you know the way you visualize a plate to the way that you choose the uh, the the colors to the way you choose your protein to the way you choose your your shapes. It's it's everything. Are there any cooks in your life that inspire you or have influenced you? Cooks, I would say chefs. Yes, um, chefs. Absolutely, yeah. I would say throughout my career there has been um, a lot of chefs that from different parts of the world that I've worked with that have played the uh, mentorship role for me in my life. I would say even year to date, I still have chefs. I, I had one of my one of my mentors I reached out to uh, two weeks ago just to say hi. I'm like, hey man, I haven't seen you in a while. Just constantly finding drawing inspiration from people around me that are doing positive things. What inspired you to start Culinary Concepts? Well, early on in my career, you know, I always set a goal. I wanted to teach. Um, I wasn't sure at what capacity, you know, throughout my journey of going and working in different locations, you, you definitely experience the shortage of uh, qualified individuals to work in kitchens. Moving to Charlottesville and Charlottesville being the micro city that it is, 
you know, we have well over 500 restaurants in, in, a, in a 10 mile radius. So that problem's amplified times 100. I moved here with this extremely naive perspective. Uh, I moved here from San Francisco thinking that, oh, I'm, we're opening up a high-end restaurant. It's going to be super easy to staff. To my surprise, like after two weeks, I had zero applications. I mean, not even a dishwasher. You know, I had to go back to the drawing board. I ended up posting an ad that literally read, um, are you passionate about cooking? Have you ever wanted to work in a professional kitchen? Send me your resume. Not only did I get a ton of resumes, but for the next six months, I averaged between 30 to 40 resumes a month. And the commonality between most of the applicants was the, uh, the lack of understanding of what it takes to function in a kitchen. Um, you had people that were passionate about cooking, but they, they hadn't received the guidance that we need in order to properly grow in the kitchen. And this entire thing started with a question, are there any programs out there designed to help people find career pathways aside from, you know, your traditional schooling? And to my surprise, nationally, there's only three. And none of them really focused on uh, the things that I was seeing in my kitchens, which was more of the life skills aspect. So I designed a program. Actually, I designed it in mind thinking I was going to pass it off. But then really kind of, again, really reevaluating my three-year, my five-year plan and, and that being a passion in life, I kind of felt like it was an opportunity to fulfill something that, you know, I, I had set for myself many years ago. So tell me about the training program. What do people who join the program learn? So I'll always tell people from the, from the door, it is not a culinary training program. We're talking about Go Cook here, uh, which is in partnership with uh, the city of Charlottesville. But it's not a culinary training program. It's a life skills navigation program. And the goal with the program is to help people identify the skills that your mom and dad might have taught you or you might be trying to teach your kids and understand how those skills correlate with the skill set that you need in the kitchen and how you can use that, those skills to better yourself in a career and grow through the industry, throughout, throughout the industry. What opportunities do you think are out there for local people trying to get into the restaurant industry? Oh, my God, it's endless. <laughs> There's so many opportunities. But it's a mindset. You know, I think that a lot of the times, unfortunately, because of the Food Network and all of the popular TV shows, there is a skewed misconception of what culinary is and what the food service industry looks like. Um, and you have culinary schools, you have a lot of people going to school and they graduate with, you know, forty, fifty thousand $50,000 and they can't afford to go into these line cook positions. So, you know, they're moving into, they're moving to more towards like larger corporations that can support a salary. So when you get to an area like Charlottesville that has, you know, that's kind of rooted in mom and pop restaurants, it's interesting because we're at a stage now where restaurants are just popping up everywhere. And, you know, everybody's robbing Peter to pay Paul just to get somebody in the door. I remember uh, this is probably about six months ago, I was talking to a, a business owner locally who had to close their doors because they couldn't find qualified staff. So the question, you know, getting into the industry, are there opportunities? Absolutely. My, my advice would be to really seek out proper guidance. The mentorship and the coaching goes a long way, and that can really make the difference in, between a job and a career for you. Where do you see inequality in the restaurant business or in the kitchen? I think that it's a double-edged sword, that question. Um, you know, you look at, you know, I'm, I'm a chef, you know, I've been in these chef's shoes uh, for most of my career. It's this dichotomy where you're so passionate about what you're doing, but you're working 60 to 70 hour work day, work weeks, and, um, you know, you're short staff. And when you finally get that individual in that's super passionate, that wants to put in and is just looking for you to pour into them, you don't have anything to pour into them. And literally, they're day off. <laughs> it's just like, all right, I'm going to take a day off. I haven't taken a day off in three months. 
and um, you take that day off and, you know, this person's kind of thrown to the wolves and it's not intentional, but urgent versus important, right? These folks, you know, end up moving around from restaurant to restaurant because this is the story. So when you say equality, I think that it's more of a, a culture shift. Um, I think that from the owners all the way down to, to the chefs, there really needs to be a change in culture to make it more inviting uh, for to, to make people want to work in restaurants and want to be on your team. Restaurants, I mean, it's, it's high stress. Um, you know, you're working with people that are extremely passionate. And when anyone's passionate about something, you know, there's really no middle ground. You know, it's either you're angry or really happy, right? <laughs> and it's not anger out of like, I hate you. It's more out of frustration. And I think that if you're coming into the industry um, for the first time and you're not used to that environment, which most people aren't, it's a, it's, it's a shock, you know, it's like, you know, ice water, right? Like jumping in a bath of ice water is a shock to your system and not everybody can weather the storm. And when you look at today's culture and you look at, you know, you know the generation X and, you know, and the millennium generation, uh, which I fall into, <laughs> but, you know, the mindset is very different than the traditional kitchen. Just like, you know, when you look at tech, you look at something like Google, who is a giant in the industry and in, in, not in, in the uh, food service industry, but you look at what they've done with their food service. They've really shaped the culture and they've made it so people want to work for them and that people want to be in that environment. And that's what needs to happen if the food service industry is really going to survive and, and be able to keep up with the demand. Well, thank you so much <laughs> for talking to us. Sure. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. This is great. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TJ FM Network. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. For an update on statewide news, Nathan Moore rings up our friend in Richmond. Well, each week here on Soundboard, we cover state news and politics, and as we do each week, we check in with our friend and journalist, Peter Galaska. He lives in the Richmond area, writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. Peter, good morning. Good morning. Well, Virginia's going to have a new Speaker of the House when the Democrats take the majority, right. starting in the next session. Uh, her name's Eileen Fillercorn. She's a Democrat from Fairfax. Um, beyond that, who is she? Um, she's, she's been in the House, I think, since 2010, around that era. So she's not a newcomer. She's a veteran. Uh, she's very strong on things such as ERA, women's rights, um, gun control. Um, she's definitely part of that Democratic strong blue uh, Northern Virginia uh, group. And she's announced her uh, transition team, and there are a lot of um, pretty solid people on it, like uh, Wayne Turnage, who's a chief analyst at JLARC, the Joint Legislative Auditing Re- uh, Review Commission. In addition to that, Suzanne Denslow uh, is going to be trans- transition director, the well-known David Toscano, former delegate and mayor of Charlottesville, is on there. You know, it, it's going to be kind of, I think, center-left. She's not going to be a socialist. Um, she is from New York City. She was born there and went to college in New York and then ended up in Washington and went to American U and got a, a, a law degree there. And she's a lobbyist. Um, she worked for a number of uh, her husband's a lobbyist. Uh, she works for a firm that has done work in Virginia, but 
it does work throughout the country, mostly at the state level and state legislatures and, and government houses and things like that. Um, as far as legislative priorities, she's listed a few things like climate protections, anti-discrimination mm-hmm. laws, uh, equal right. rights amendment, gun control legislation. These are kind of the, the, the sort of obvious things that pretty much everybody's written about uh, as, as democratic mm-hmm. priorities. What do, we, what do we think is likely? Well, I, I know for one thing that seems likely to me, since I've written about it a bit, is the uh, it's the regional um, you know gas and Reggie, the regional gas greenhouse gas initiative, which is um, I think there are ten states in it. Don't I forget how many exactly? Uh, it's sort of a, a statewide, a state-to-state compact uh, that presents essentially a carbon tax. It's like a tax and trade, uh, tax and you know tap and trade kind of policy. Where you have certain member states have certain you know uh, targets that they reduce carbon by so much per you know years, and Virginia voted to join it, but the Republicans kind of messed it up. So I'm sure that Reggie is definitely an in. I have no idea what's going to happen with uh, the gas pipelines. Uh, uh, Duke Energy, which is a partner in the Atlantic uh, Coast Pipeline with Dominion. Uh, kind of did some weird things financially that suggest it's getting queasy about the project. So I don't know what's going to happen there. And um, so that's 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 pretty much it for the um, the energy side for now. Um, as far as uh, you know, women and health. I mean, you might be looking towards some kind of um, you know another way, and maybe a state-run kind of Obamacare type thing, which I don't know much about. I've just heard about it. And of course, um, she's very pro pro choice, and so that will you know come forward. And of course, the, the, there is the Equal Rights Amendment. Right, and the Equal Rights Amendment is kind of an interesting one because we are Virginia is the last would be the last state needed to ratify it in order for it to actually become constitutional law. The next mm-hmm. amendment. Uh, at the same time, there was an expiration date on the original legislation. Um, so what? Take me through. There's a big question mark on what okay. happens. All right. This will take a little while, so bear with me. It's a little tough. As you know, the uh, the idea of, an, of something like the ERA was first uh, sort of proposed back in 1923. That was the suffragette era when women were struggling to get the vote that period of time. And so uh, it was proposed in 1972, and uh, they needed three-quarters uh, of the state legislatures uh, needed to ratify it within seven years after 1972, and uh, they didn't have enough, so extended the deadline to 82. And so then it kind of went off into uh, Netherlands. They, they, you know, they, they were still three states shy, and it wasn't really ended. They didn't really put another end date on it, and so it came back. And so in 2017, Nevada approved it. Then in 2018, uh, Illinois approved it. And in um, this year, earlier this year, uh, the state Virginia Senate approved it. It got nowhere. But the thing is, if it, assume this. Assume that Virginia really ratifies it and it goes down the proper channels. And it's a clean bill and it's a perfect world. Then ERA is ratified. And it's got a process to go to, go through. But there's some issues with it because um, since there's no end date, there's no deadline, people are going to probably sue saying this isn't right. Other people point to other amendments, uh, one that goes way back to the uh, 1700s that, you know, having to do with Congress giving itself a pay raise, it's the, they can't give themselves a pay raise, but they can have a pay raise for the next group coming in. 
And that somehow has been murking around the, the Capitol Hill for, for centuries without an end date. So there's a precedent for not having an end date. In any event, it may end up in as the, the chief arch- archivist in the Library of Congress to decide. And that's that's where my my legal you know ability and of understanding kind of goes because there are a lot of constitutional lawyers out there who can are going to have different views on this, and um, it seems set up for ratification, but we don't know. I mean, some states I don't remember their names specifically have actually moved to try to de-ratify it, so we'll see. Yeah. But it's, it sounds like the, the stars are somewhat aligning for ratification by Virginia. Right. And the Equal Rights Movement really is, just to clarify, I mean, it really is just about, uh, uh, you know, that, that uh, you know, it'll be, it shall be against the uh, constitutional law to discriminate based on somebody's sex. That's essentially all it says. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And it sounds sort of like a no-brainer today, but, you know, back in 1923, women barely had the vote. If they did, you know, yeah. they were considered chattel. Yeah. And, um, and even, you know, according if you... Uh, even today, the Washington Post is going through some internal issues because uh, the the newspaper guild there has found that there's a there seems to be a separate pay scale for uh, male and female journalists, um, which has come up before. Yeah. But in any event, we'll see. The other piece, though, and this was so the Virginia Mercury had an interview with that uh, head of the U.S. Archive, and um, you know some of it does come down to kind of you know judicial interpretations of. Kind of really, you know, fine print stuff as far as expiration dates and all that. As far yeah. as whether it becomes right. it becomes a, a, an actual amendment, um, he kind of had this this sort of dark potential imagination, uh, you know. And, and granted, yeah. this isn't isn't likely to happen necessarily, but it just in such divided times, you may have people right. who who support the equal rights movement who carry around versions of the Constitution that include it, and people who oppose it who carry around constitutions that don't. I mean, is that actually a possible future scenario? It's it, as I said. I mean, it's, it could end up in the court one way or the other. I mean, you know, usually you have a deadline for amendments. You want to go the amendment route. And all these kind of things are going to come up, and um, and the thing is, you already have sort of a, kind of a weak precedent in this pay law that goes back, you know, to forever. I mean, you know, and so it's it's just going to be. You know, hopefully it would be revo- would be resolved quickly and smoothly, but it may not be, and it's going to be more for, you know, law students to mull over than I would really want to. Yeah. All right, Peter. Well, thanks so much. All right. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard. Your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Hope you learned something new this week. If you did, please subscribe and share Soundboard with your friends. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Production assistance this week by Justine Baird. Our theme song is Chioga Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. <laughs>